Good afternoon, good evening, and good night. I'm Robin Dibbin. And I'm Jack Gerbertson. And, and welcome, welcome to, to the, the West End Best, Best Friend, Friend podcast. podcast. The podcast gives you all of the stagey news and views. Coming up this episode, starting at the end, well, that seems apt enough for an interview with Benjamin Buttons, Jamie Parker, and Molly Osborne. Pick up those dancing feet, we're off to 42nd Street with Nicole Lily Baisden. And nothing says summer like sitting in a hot theatre desperate for an interval ice cream and being transported somewhere else. We give you our roundup of this summer's shows and start planning our ticket list. But first, on with the news. We are recording on Monday night, which is the Monday after the weekend of West End Live, the hot date for any theatre goer in London. It's If you don't know what it is, it is the free concert that happens in Trafalgar Square every year, Saturday and Sunday, full of all of your favourite musical shows. Jet, have you ever been? I have never been <gasps> and I always, always kick myself and this year, <laughs> this year I was just like, well you can... You could be in London. You could be in London right now, Jet. Why, why are you not in London right now watching this? Have you been? I've been. I've been a couple of times. I think I've been. Okay. Th- three, three times I've been. Okay, and this year it looked amazing. I mean, we had everything. We had everything from Next Normal, Les Mis. We had Moulin Rouge. Six was there. Heather's was there. We had then now and next. We had Operation Mince Me, Obviously, I mean. A well, rare, for- rare performance from Book of Mormon. They don't normally do mm-hmm. it, but they were there as well. Wicked, obviously, Stables, Les Mis, Phantom, all of your all of your old faithfuls from the West End. And then also what I love is the Sunday where you get some of the solo sets. I believe Rachel Tucker was performing again and Trevor Deal Nichols had a set. And I believe Saturday night was closed by the one and only Tim Minchin. Yes, I saw this on social media, playing a piano set, and I think he said something along the lines of thinking it wasn't going to be very much fun and that he'd find it hard. And actually, it was so affirming and wonderful, and he had the most brilliant time. And he played songs, I think, from both Matilda and from Groundhog Day, and just had an absolutely brilliant time. Yeah, all of these videos, by the way, are on YouTube on London Theatre Live. Yes, I think so. Yep. Probably about half a dozen versions of them that have been captured by the audience as well. Yeah, all over TikTok. I know that Jamie Moscato's version of Roxanne from Moulin Rouge has been captured by many people on TikTok. (laughs) And it's so good. It's so good. It's so dialed back and yet so powerful. He's a phenomenal actor. I saw him first in Big Fish in, in the other palace. And we were like, I saw him in Heather's in the other palace. Yes, I, and we then saw him in Heather's when it transferred to the Hay, Haymarket, I think it was. Yes, yes, it was. saw him in Heather's there. And yeah, he's a phenomenal talent. There is yeah. also a video floating around online of him as Anthony in Sweeney Todd. The Welsh interesting, version, Which is really interesting to hear that side of his voice, like a proper opera voice coming out. But yes, check out West End Live. It's always a great time. And if you went, get in touch let us know how it was what was your highlights we should we should try and go i feel i think we should next year 
we oh god there'll just be everyone screaming i mean it's that's the thing that intimidates me i think is there were so many people there and it just keeps going and keep going and i know on saturday they had to block people going in because so many i think maybe because it was trooping the color and people were busy in town already or maybe just because musical theater is having like a boom moment at the moment <laughs> which is freaking brilliant but so so good but yeah they had to stop people going in on the saturday so i'm always slightly overwhelmed by the idea of going even though i think it sounds absolutely amazing i know they they have a limit of people and they they cap Mm -hmm. it and when i first went queuing was fine like it opened at something like 11 we rocked up at half nine really close to the front of the queue is all fine now Mm -hmm. you need to be queuing from like eight o'clock to sort of get a proper place in the wow. in Trafalgar Square because I think I saw a TikTok at half nine and the queue had gone up past Phantom of the Opera right the way up to Tiger Tiger up that road so it was a the big traditional old traditional geography of London yes oh yeah. do, do you not navigate London by theatres and Tiger Tigers one of them yes <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but you're right it does sound amazing absolutely amazing and what a brilliant thing that london brings on which is like you know and also god bless the performers it was so hot this weekend and i think the majority of them went in straight into matinees after it or straight into evening performances it must have been in the nicest way hell um but like the buzz they must have got from actually performing in front of so many people must have been brilliant and you also get the feedback because the whole crowd is singing along with you which is just incredible and it's it is really fun and like when les mis are singing and and doing one day more the whole crowd are also singing one day more and there's nothing quite like a a massive crowd of theater fans no (laughs) do they ever do any other song but one day more because like i feel like everyone would just be disappointed so les Les mis do a little medley so okay. they, they come out, they normally do I Dreamed a Dream. Mm-hmm. And then they do normally like On My Own. Yeah. Or Bring Him Home, one of those. Mm-hmm. And then they go into One Day More. Good on them. That's exactly what you want. Yeah. That sounds lovely. Western Life. Western Life. The other big event that I did not attend, but I watched a lot of on social media, was the Tonys. Which, firstly, oh the Tonys. We know that there is currently a strike on in the US for writers. Ariana DeBose hosting the Tonys, opening up the entire show, flicking through an empty script with blank pages, and then dancing her way through the theatre, going through like so many different songs as medley, like a medley of so many different songs, skipping around. She threw herself down a staircase and was caught at the bottom. <laughs> it was all non-verbal. It was all dance because they were making a statement that there is a writer's strike in the US right now. So they weren't writing a script. They weren't writing any new material. She was going to dance her way through and ad-lib her way through the entire show it was absolutely phenomenal that's insane i didn't i i I haven't seen much of the tonys i'm not gonna lie i haven't caught up this year but that sounds nuts it was just that first shot of the blank pages being skipped through and you're like oh she's doing it she's doing it she's going for it and then she ad-libbed her opening monologue and she was like if you thought the tonys hosting from me last year was chaotic wait until you see what it's gonna be like this year 
because I don't have a script. It just shows how brilliant theatre performers are that she held this two and a half hour ceremony with no script. I'm sure she had like the beats she needed to get. But literally there's one point where she was like, and here to host the, here to present this award is, I genuinely have no idea because I don't have a script right now. So who, please welcome to the stage, whoever comes on next. <laughs> I need to watch this. You do need to watch it. It was amazing. But fundamentally, there's also some brilliant winners. Kimberly Akimbo absolutely swept to the stage, which was great. Revivals of Parade, which, oh my God, have you heard the soundtrack of Parade? I've heard clips. I've heard Ben Platt singing in it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I've listened to that so many times. It's an incredibly, incredible, powerful soundtrack, which is out there. Sweeney Todd was just remarkable so so good it's just that lovely extra bit of being able to see in the same way western line being able to get a glimpse of what's going on on broadway in the way that you would never get here mm, definitely and i i saw the sweeney talk clip that was a clip that i mm-hmm. did see and what i loved was you see it on tv and and you just see josh groban coming out of the fog as, as sweeney mm-hmm. and you're like oh this is really cool <laughs> i saw a different angle of it on um, tiktok yeah. from and, the circle yeah and you just see him coming in and lying on the floor in the, in the haze <laughs> in the haze and then two chorus go and, and they didn't just like help him up they launch him up yanked yeah and he yeah. was just like straight through and he's just like turn the tail of sweeney on yeah it was great yeah, I enjoyed it a lot. I'm really excited. I mean, oh, it's just, it's that glitz and glamour. I feel like every time the Tonys is on, it reminds me of like little 12-year-old me desperately trying to find clips on YouTube where they've been almost like geographically locked and you're desperate to get a little bit of an insight into what the big shows are doing and what's happening. And I felt exactly the same this year, watching Ariana DeBose dancing on Instagram or some of the speeches. There was one speech that got massively, massively redacted and bleeped out which I was like okay well now I need to find the original one and I think it was the the audience reaction was just incredible of this man talking about how he'd had homophobic slurs going up and then he was like and I'm still that homophobic slur but this time I've got a Tony <laughs> and that was so much fun like the claiming and reclaiming of the stuff that people decided to bully you about when you were being set apart and then yeah. being like yeah well I'm still that person but hey I'm winning for it now isn't that nice <laughs> What was your highlight of the Tonys, apart from, uh, apart from Ariana DeVos hosting? I really enjoyed the reactions on the red carpet from the winners, and especially Jay Harrison-Gee and Alex Newell on the red carpet. Just just their pure joy. Jay Harrison-Gee won Best Actor, I think the first non-binary actor to win for being in Some Like It Hot, which is, again, an amazing soundtrack and has like has songs from Smash in it, which is oh, no way. so fun. Yeah, so you're listening to it and you're like, yeah, this is that show that you know that it's a musical, you know it's a movie, you know that it's what Marilyn Monroe's in. And then you're listening to it and this is the first time it's been a musical and it's got some of the songs from Smash in it. And it's so fun. And yeah, so Jay Harrison Gee is one for Best Actor and they are on the red carpet just talking about how much that means to them and the how much fun it is because they they literally are playing a part where they begin presenting as a cis man and then they go on the run because they're being searched for the mafia and they start dressing up as a woman and they're like actually I think this is me and that's exactly what they've been like their performance but also they've been recognized for exactly who they are and that's incredible and the same for Alex Newell in Shucked which I think everyone has probably heard the standout songs from Shucked at this point I mean we are all independently owned and 
incorporated. I don't, I don't think I've learned the, the lyrics at this point, but every time I hear it, I'm like, this is a bop. This is such a bop. So yeah, those reactions on the red carpet where they've had like half a beat to, to process what's happening, Oh, my favourites. That's cool. And talking of Shucked, we have a mm-hmm. news story about Shucked. It's coming to London. The show with book by Robert Holm, who also wrote Tootsie and 13, and songs by Brandy Clark and Shane McAnally is currently playing at the Nederlander in New York. The West End production will open in 2024, produced by Cameron McIntosh. Theatre dates and further details are yet to be announced, but Macintosh has said, I am delighted to confirm that London is going to get shucked in one of my favourite theatres next year. Shucked is that rarity, a completely original musical and the funniest show since the Book of Mormon with a terrifically tuneful rocking music and Western score. It snuck up on Broadway and is proving to be the most talked about hit this season. The corn at the heart of Shucked will have you husky with limitless laughter. Wow, Cameron, that was great. I know. What a, <laughs> I mean, what a synopsis, which is, he sold it very well. And the synopsis is that Maisie and Bo, Maisie, get it, Maisie, because she's corn, are two residents of the rural Midwestern community of Cobb county and they're forced to postpone their wedding when the corn crop is blighted Maisie on the advice of her cousin Lulu the local whiskey distiller leaves town to try and weigh, try and find a way to save their corn it sounds like the perfect musical plot it sounds almost terrible but with the reaction it's getting I'm so excited <laughs> um, it sounds awful and that's why I think it's going to be great <laughs> People seem to love it. Mm-hmm. It's going down so, so well. And uh, I think the amount of puns you can get into one sentence alone should be a reason to go and see it. And I do feel it's done well off the back of the corn kid from last year. It was obviously written before he was about, but in, I did it in the, the. Is this a conspiracy theory? No, it must have been written before he was. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah. But in the bit of the soundtrack that I've listened to, they do have a clip, like a line a sample. from what he, from his song. Well, but I say his most, song from... It's the most beautiful thing. Yeah. It's, it's something like that. Or it's, it's it, something like the juicy bit or something. It's got the juice. Yeah, it's got the juice. I swear that's in one of the opening numbers of Shucked. It's, it's in there somewhere. I was like, oh, this is great. Awful. Brilliant. <laughs> wonderful. Speaking, actually, you know what, I didn't intend that segue, but speaking of awful, brilliant and wonderful, darling, <laughs> you've been unwell this last week and I... I genuinely think that you have dreamt this up in a fever dream. <laughs> but Carrie Ellis is coming to London in Diana the Musical. I'm so excited. Why? Because I I really like Diana the Musical. Why? <laughs> I think it's campy and dumb, but it's the music isn't what you'd expect from a Diana musical. I actually think I don't mu- disagree with you at any point here so far. <laughs> I feel the music is actually quite accessible, and I don't think the songs are bad, which I may get shot down for saying. But I actually don't think the music is bad. Listeners, I know you don't write in very often, but this is the time. The time is now. The day is here. Please, God, give us some <laughs> feedback here. Am I? Are we Team Robin or are we Team Jet? Is it is Diana all the way or has Diana got to go away? <laughs> I just... So, so have you got tickets? I've got tickets. Like, li- literally, I was I was passed out on Wednesday and I was really ill. And I, I woke up, looked at my phone. There was a notification from Todaytix. 
saying Diana was coming to London. I was like, oh, And you thought, well, clearly God. I'm very dehydrated and I've started hallucinating. Yeah, but I was like, I need to go because like Diana, the musical, so I was like, I need to go. And then I clicked on the link and it told me that Carrie Ellis was Diana. So I was like, well, now I have to be there. So I then just went and booked two tickets. Meanwhile, my friend had messaged me saying, Carrie is coming and Diana, we need to go. And I was like, well, I've got two tickets now, so we're going. <laughs> Well, if anyone else wants to go, the dazzling and devastating life of Princess Diana takes centre The dazzling and devastating life of Princess Diana takes centre stage in the original show Diana the musical, and it's coming to the Eventum Apollo for one night only on the fourth of December, twenty twenty three. The UK will get to see this iconic. I'm putting that in quotation marks. I did not write this Broadway <laughs> musical live on stage for the first time, featuring. 80s-inspired mega-hit show tunes by Bon Jovi's David Bryan, Tony Award-winning Joe DiPietro, who wrote on What's New Pussycat and Memphis. Did you know it was choreographed by the person that choreographed Come From Away? Come From Away, for all of its many brilliant things, is mostly just moving around the stage. I mean, that's kind of what happens in Diana. Yeah, that's what I mean. Like, um, <laughs> I, I don't think I'd ever... I love Come For Away. I'll go see it any time it's on, but I don't think I ever sell it on its choreo. I, I think the movement's very clever. This is maybe... It's very clever, yeah. but I wouldn't be like, mm, go see it for that time that they, you know, pick up some chairs and decide that they're on a plane. This radical new version of Down of the Musical is directed by Owen Horsley. It stars Carolus from Anything Goes, Wicked, We Are Rock You, the list goes on. As dreams. Uh, yep, as Princess Diana, Maya Quonsabreed from Sixty Musical as 19-year-old Diana Spencer, and Denise Walsh from Loose Women as the Queen. You know, <laughs> that is the only reason I want to go and see this. Because <laughs> that is full-on hun culture. <laughs> I'm guessing you don't know the soundtrack well to Diana. I watched it on Netflix when it came out. Yep. But I did watch it on Netflix in the bit between Christmas and New Year in that year where Christmas got cancelled in lockdown. Okay, so you were quite depressed when you watched it. And there might have been gin involved. Okay, so may- maybe try it again. But I'm going to no. go away and watch it tonight and come back being like, I'm so wrong, can we re-report the podcast? <laughs> Turns out, I'm wrong. You're all right, this is the best thing that's ever been uh, written. In all seriousness, there's some proper belty songs in it um, <laughs> that Dinah sings. And... Once they announced the cast, and I was re-listening to it again, I was like, oh my God, Carrie Ellis is going to be so at home vocally in this role. That's quite nice. It's going to really... Getting someone who can really perform it and sell those songs. I, I don't know who it was that played the Diana originally on Broadway, so no disrespect to her at all. But to really ground that in someone that you have trust in is quite interesting. And I think it will be interesting to see it in the UK as well, because that's very different from an American perspective on the same person. Yes, the one thing I'm intrigued about is how it's going to be taken in the UK. Because mm-hmm. obviously, like, the press is going to pick it up and go wide with it and things like that, because it's going to be quite controversial. Mm-hmm. Um, Jana D. Val played the part on Broadway, played Diana. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay, is, I don't uh, know her. She is a British actress. She was the only British actress in the cast on Broadway. Interesting. Uh, but yeah, just listening to the part, it's going to be so vocally comfortable for Carrie to sing it. And it's going to be really, really powerful hearing these these big numbers, because they are big numbers that they've written for this show. I'm very excited. I say I've got tickets. I didn't think about anything. I've never thought about anything less to book tickets for. <laughs> that might have been the fever, or it might have just been the fact it's careless coming back. It might London. have just been the stars aligning for you. Yeah. Um, well, I look forward to eating my words and/or 
hearing all about it. <laughs> but that is all after summer. And first, we have a brand new movie starring Ben Platt called Theatre Camp, which is coming out on August 25th. Now, Theatre Camp's story is all about summer. And when the kids are gathering from all over the world to attend Adrian Axe, a scrappy theatre camp in the upstate New York that's a haven for budding performers. After its inomitable founder, Joan, played by Amy Sedaris, falls into a coma, her clueless crypto-bro son, Troy, played by Jimmy Tatro, is tasked with keeping the thespian paradise running. With financial ruin looming, Troy must join forces with, with Amos, Ben Platt, Rebecca Diane, Molly Gordon, and their band of eccentric teachers to come up with a solution before the curtain rises on opening night. Now, Jet sent me the trailer for this, which I've watched, and it looks really, it looks really fun. It, <laughs> for, I think for any theatre fan, out there, but you're like, it just looks really fun. Fun. <laughs> it looks fun. It's fine. That's all it needs to be. It's just fun. <laughs> it does look fun. It looks really fun. Ben Platt looks like traits of Pitch Perfect. It's yes, Pitch Perfect coming through. Sure. Benji, bit of bit of Evan thrown in there, you know. And yeah. Sort of between the dear Evan Hansen, Evan then did his first year at university in Pitch Perfect, and then maybe his second, the summer between his second and third year, he's at theatre camp, and he's like, finally, it's my time. Yes. I think it looks really fun. It, I, yes. I'm excited. I don't quite know what to make of it, but I think it's it going to be good. It seems like one of those summer movies that everyone goes and sees growing up where they're fairly generic but in this time it's based on theatre and therefore hopefully it brings all of the weirdos out it's got like Noah Galvin in it and stuff yes. it's got I think it's going to have a few different cameos from proper lovies and when it's been 40 degrees and no one's had any water for days and we're all exhausted this is exactly what we need for all the weirdo quids just to be like yeah aha, I want to see that that one thank you thank you thank you I will watch it again and again so it's the first time feature directed by directorial duo Molly Gordon and Nick Lieberman and it authentically celebrates the brilliant and slightly unhinged educators and magical spaces that allow kids to be themselves and find their confidence, nailing the details after experiencing decades of camp life. With a winning comedic ensemble cast and boundless creativity, Theatre Camp wears its cultural following potential squarely on its sequined shoulders, gifting us with instantly quotable lines and zany, lovable characters in the kind of hilarious mockumentary that deserves rapturous applause. It sounds fabulous. Yeah, that that's that's summed it up for me. I, I feel like you're walking it back, but I'll take it. Um, and, the <laughs> la- and then the last one I am going to mention for us today is that casting has been announced for Next to Normal's UK premiere. Set to appear in the Pulitzer-winning musical will be the previously announced Gap Grammy Award-winning nominee Cassie Levy and Trevor Dion Nicholas. But joining them are Jack Affriccio, uh, Jack Wolf and Eleanor Worthington Cox. But more excitingly for us, because we've just interviewed him for this show, is the Tony Award winner and Olivier Award winner, Jamie Parker. This is extremely exciting. The Donmar Warehouse's outgoing artistic director, Michael Longhurst, will direct the new production of the seminal musical, which has music by Tom Kitt and book and lyrics by Brian Yorkey. It runs from the 12th of August to the 7th of October, 2023. Yeah, this musical started in 2008 and it follows a mother struggling with bipolar disorder and it was first seen on Broadway in 2009 and it won three Tonys, including Best Musical and also the 2010 Pulitzer Prize. It's an incredible show. 
Yeah. D- don't I'm... go thinking you're going to have a happy night at the theatre. <laughs> but it tackles so many issues that theatre doesn't normally approach because the issues that it goes around like the bipolar and I don't want to spoil anything but there's a lot about therapy and medicational things like that in it and family dynamics mm-hmm. and struggles with these disorders involved so I feel like it can be quite a brave subject to tackle and do it respectively and I feel this show really does it right and it's done yeah. as an opera. An opera in the sense meaning there's no speaking. It's just musically it's sung. Through. Through. It's not an opera opera. So have a show and, and get the story across. And with a small cast as well. The fact there's only seven people in it. Six yeah, or seven it, people. It, very special. I'm gutted I don't have a ticket. Yeah, I have been meaning to book tickets for a while. And I am heartbroken that I did not get my arson to gear quick enough. So just putting out there to the universe that if anyone from the show wants to come on the podcast and we can go and see it, then uh, please, 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 hi, please. (laughs) We feel very deeply about it and we'd love to share it with a wider audience. (laughs) It is a very, very special show. And I think it's very interesting that start of it being in 2008, 2009 and now coming back in 2023, that actually it resonates just as much 15 years later, 15 you years know, 2008-2009 is me, that's me part way through university and I feel like part of me is still that person that I was when I was in my early 20s and that person is very raw and easily accessible, especially through shows like this where you get to go, let's sit and feel those feelings and explore stuff that you didn't get to do and there is some magic in that. Now, one of the shows that's getting a lot of buzz at the moment is Benjamin Button. It premiered at the Southwark Playhouse Elephant and is playing there till July the 1st. Jet snapped up the chance to talk to Jamie Parker and Molly Osborne, who plays Benjamin and his wife, Elowin. on the West End Best Friend podcast we have Jamie Parker and Molly Osborne who are currently playing the roles of Benjamin Button and Eloin Keynes in the new production of Benjamin Button at the Southwark Playhouse Elephant. Jamie is best known for his role as Harry Potter in the original West End cast of Harry Potter and the Cursed Child for which he received an Olivier Award for Best Actor in a Leading Role in a Play and a What's On Stage Award for Best Actor in a Play and he got a Tony Award nomination for Best Actor in a Leading Role in a Play for his portrayal of the character in the original Broadway production. Goodness me. Molly Osborne is best known for her work at the Many a Chocolate Factory, where she's been seen in The Sex Party by Terry Johnson, Rebecca Tackman's Tony Award winning Indecent, and Trevor Nunn's 2018 revival of Fiddler on the Roof. She's also soon to be appearing in a screen adaptation of Neil Gaiman's Nancy Boys, which I shouldn't be talking to her about today, but I, I'm definitely intrigued to hear more. But welcome to the podcast, Molly and Jamie. That one, quiet. Yeah. <laughs> Your face just there for listeners, you can't see this, but her face just there was like, is that is that known? Do people know this? It's on the press release. Oh no, no, I, I will hopefully appear in like four times in one episode. <laughs> I'm so intrigued. I love that book. It's the tale of Anansi the Spider and it's uh, it uses one of the characters from American Gods, the TV series that a lot of people yeah. have also seen. That must have been quite good fun. Quite a big oh, scale oh. production. The, uh, I've never seen anything like it. Like so built inside, and someone I'm sure that the floor looks like it's been rained on constantly. Like that was like, like, <laughs> I've seen anything so expensive in my life. 
much, much like our production of Benjamin Button then. Yeah, exactly. It's just, yeah. you know, just staying on this level. I found that and now I don't, you know, it's that freaking nice. Um, and Jamie, I really appreciate you just being like, let's keep this on track, shall we, team? So tell us about, <laughs> tell us Benjamin, about, no. tell us about Benjamin Button. Oh, I don't know. Molly, tell us something about Benjamin Button. Tell us, <laughs> what, what, what's the story of Benjamin Button? Benjamin Button is a short story, well, short, short book by F. Scott Fitzgerald originally about a sort of a magical fairy tale about a child who's born as an old man and ages backwards. So he begins, starts out as a kind of innocent soul in an elderly body and gradually gets sadder and wiser, but younger and firmer at the same time. And sort of a wish fulfillment fantasy kind of role for me. Okay, great. <laughs> And we have a, a popular conception of Benjamin Button from the film. What were your initial reactions to playing these characters? Did you have any preconceptions about what the story would be like and what the role would be? Gosh, Jamie? <laughs> <laughs> well, I didn't know the book very well. I, I had read it, I, and again, I sort of revisited it when this came up. But it's important to say that it's not closely modelled on the book at all. It's it's now public domain, which basically means that Fitzgerald's been dead for long enough for people to now legally be allowed to just flex their imaginations around the story however they want to. David Fincher, of course, did it famously with the movie with Brad Pitt and Kate Blanchett. Didn't have very much to do with the book. And, and similarly, Jethro Compton and Darren Clark have done their own spin on it. They've relocated it to Cornwall, starting just after the First World War. And Darren's populated it with these ostensibly very simple, beautiful little sort of Celtic folk tunes. And it's sort of, it's bought license for us to tell the story as actor musicians. So it feels messy and imperfect and human and has a kind of rough theatrical magic about it, which just simply involves not so much the CGI of Brad Pitt being made to look younger as the film goes on with lots of money behind it. It's simply a case of 12 storytellers narrating through words and music. And when they say something, it becomes so. It comes into being because we've asked the audience to do that with their minds. So on a production level, we sort of, we nod towards it when it's done through voice and posture, but it's mostly the words and the music that achieve it. And But it requires that conspiracy with the audience. And I'm very, very happy to say that so far, the audience has been very conspiratorial indeed. Good on them. I'm very glad to hear it. And as you say, it is those little nods, but it's an, it's a, the show is firstly, it's nonstop and you are moving and taking all of that space on stage constantly. You're playing instruments. Everyone's doing an absolutely brilliant job and kicking and working their asses off, but it's incredibly physical, especially as you're both embodying, you know, people at different ends of their life. You're going through 80 years. That might be an exaggeration, but 60, 70 years. Yeah. How did you prepare for such an active role? You know, were you doing cardio before warm-ups? Gosh, well, we had like amazing movement directors on the on Chai Sands Howard, is that right? Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. And so we were wonderfully stretched every day and as well for like the instruments for every hands and fingers and everything and get us in the zone for it. But yeah, it is now that especially with the weather now and, and the, the costumes which are so beautiful but so detailed with the materials it's all wool and everything so we are working out for sure <laughs> yeah yeah you're prepared to be on the Cornish coastline being battered by the elements and actually you are in a nice black box theater in 30 degrees yeah, sort of it's become more of a Tennessee Williams play as the run is going on <laughs> yeah the Cornish uh, absence slipping into South yeah. American <laughs> try playing yeah. Count Hot Tin Roof in several meters of wool 
Uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, it's got to be said that Molly and I both get off relatively lightly physically in the show. Yeah. It's the likes of Benedict Salter who's trying to dance and play the cello at the same time. His instruments are not light. I mean, the accordions as well that uh, Jack and, and John oh. carry around. It's every time when I was watching it and every time all of a sudden the double bass was the other side of the stage and I was like, wait, when did they move? Yeah. When did they move from one end to the other and take yeah. that with them? There's, it's there's very slickly simple, done. Yeah, there's one movement where I had to somehow make sense in my head of getting from stage right to stage left for the next entrance. And there wasn't really any particular reason for doing it and looking around for justification. I didn't really need it because behind me, a double bass was approaching at speed and it was just enough to get me off a box and out of the way. <laughs> Yeah, that's <laughs> a good motivation. <laughs> yeah. Uh, now, speaking of those instruments, the music and lyrics are by Daring Park with musical direction from Mike Aspinall. And I think anyone who's seen the show will say that the band and the music really is taking the show to the next level. And I find so often with Acta Muso shows, they sort of seem to treat the instruments and the music as sort of like, secondary to the dialogue in the songs they're like oh yes we need some people to play some instruments and we'll figure that out later what they're doing mm -hmm. and it can almost be shoehorned in but that is absolutely not the case with this the music is right at the heart of it and people know how to play their instruments yeah for sure I think throughout the whole process it's never been one being prioritized over the other they're both influencing each other which has meant there's been so many voices and things to navigate which one we do listen to at certain points and which has throughout the five I suppose six weeks including tech that we had to get this ready before an audience we used every single minute of that time negotiating which you know which are we doing this for because the music is there or should we should we let the music take us here or which one do we let go first and that push-pull actually it has been so so valuable in the piece I think yeah the real ebb and flow between whether the, the music is driving yeah. uh, the lyrics or the lyrics are defining what actually gets revoiced or rearranged in the music and it extends as far as this this notion of storytellers making stuff happen on the stage as they say it you know obviously there's a sort of creator aspect to that but at the same time it's a two-way street because that you get the sense that they play this music to bring something into being but only because they're getting something out of it in return darren and jethro as soon as they started as i understand it as soon as they started developing this story they inevitably went well it's all time is the recurring motif but they immediately went no clocks this isn't about clocks. There's a lot of talk of minutes, hours, seconds, and years, and months, and weeks, but there's no clocks. It's the time of seasons and of tides. Time and tide is the sort of, is the real, is the thing. It's a very organic connection to the world. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it, it definitely has that sense to it. And there were times over rehearsals where we'd maybe revisit the lyrics for a particular verse or a particular song because, you know, the, the scenario was... Uh, now that we had it on its feet in situ, we kind of, we went, oh, the, the, the thoughts are becoming more specific here. Let's maybe sort of dig down a little deeper in this. Or there are moments where it really, it's the, primarily the music, there's the sense of the music that carries us from across a change, a, a transformation in Eloan or Benjamin's soul about that particular passage of their life. And it gets us from the beginning of the song starts here, but the marriage of the words and the music achieve a change and by the end of the song, the, the world looks very, very different. Because yeah. in 70 years, you, I mean, you know, you, you've got to cover a lot of ground in a very short space of time. 
Um, yeah. And I don't think music it can be beaten as a sort of concise way of, of achieving that kind of transformation yeah. very quickly. And the pulse of the music and of everyone watching everyone counting that and feeling it together, that is like the ticking clock that is present in the pieces, watching everyone's brains. I mean, we're all doing it in our sleep at the moment. We're all like, the rhythms of the music does, it is that clock. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah, that anticipation and the the movement. And I suppose one of the things that is very keen is that this is a folk-based piece when it comes to the music. I know that they talk about in the show notes, Darren talks about Kate Rosby, who's one of my favourite artists, being one of the inspirations. And I suppose it's that folk tradition of storytelling, which is sort of always being reinvented, being retold, but also very timeless as well, because it is a tradition that goes back so far that can keep you going through 70 years, but rooting it in the present moment at the same time in something that always feels quite immediate. Yeah, absolutely. There's something sort of Orphic in the Greek chorus aspect of these storytellers, all the, the synchronicity of them articulating these thoughts as one. And, and as I say, but and also you see that as, as you saw, the, the synchronicity is really about attention. It's about everybody's eyeballs going to that one remaining actor at the same time. So the audience in that instant goes, oh, we're looking at this person. Now we're looking over here. And I was having that conversation recently with someone who came to see it because there are passages where people have to settle. They need to settle and they need to be watching the scene. But as I said, that, that, that ebb and flow needs to continue through the quality of the attention given to the scene by the people who aren't saying anything out loud or who have for two minutes out of the entire evening stopped playing their instruments. And they pointed out that the, the quality of the eye contact or the, or the focus has a musicality about it. It's part of the score. And uh, I think I can't remember who that some some there's a great quote I heard years ago. Somebody said that all art aspires to the condition of music. And you stop and think about that for a second, and it's kind of fascinating. But it's absolutely true of these of this company and the kind of work that they're doing. I know that every gig I have from now on is going to aspire to the condition of the music musicianship of this company, because their musicianship is not just about the notes that they're playing in a particular order. It's about the silences in between those notes and the quality that's given to that silence in the same way that architects talk about space. Yeah, there's almost like a conductory role of it where you can also imagine like that orchestra who are like, we need to keep our eye on the actors that are currently performing because they're the people leading the next thing. And we are always waiting to take our lead from the next movement and and it's listening and it's responding so much. It means there's no solo moments. There's no such thing as a solo moment in this show. Every single beat of it requires perhaps the person who is the focus at that moment in time being completely reliant on the other 11 and what they're doing. And supported and like lifted by it, yeah. Yeah, it's definitely yeah. something I noticed when I was watching it is that the ensemble, you can almost see them playing each line in their head, like the joy and the excitement when it's exciting is reaching everyone's eyes. They're feeling that excitement. When it's tragic, they are feeling that that heartbreak in a way where it does feel like everyone is in it together, a sort of like a living, breathing, organic thing that takes the audience with it because you can't not be reacting in the same way that the characters are reacting because the world that there you are watching has become all-encompassing. Yeah, we've had like a few conversations about the Stranger Tracks and it's sort of been left to be individual for what everybody feels that their Stranger character is either commenting on it or that they know the information already or that sometimes they are experiencing it for the first time and 
everyone's is very individual and you can really see it in everyone's faces that the unity is that they're that everyone is experiencing it in their own different ways and that we're sort of communicating that with each other sometimes but also keeping it a secret I feel like there'll be a conversation after the show closes about what each scene means for each person so I think that's if, when people come and watch it more than once you, you could watch somebody's track differently that you didn't watch or if you don't if you've seen the scene a couple of times you can watch the people watching it and it's a different experience yeah yeah people I, have said that already haven't they that they want to come and see it again and, and watch and, the uh, sides yeah, yeah watch somewhere else instead well, what a special yeah. thing to have created and that strange attack is what you're talking about is the greek chorus which is everyone is watching you know people are multi-rolling in this but at the same time when they're not playing a specific part they are playing witnesses and they're playing a chorus who's reacting to it how is that for you guys to have not only the audience watching you but you've also got a group of your castmates who are watching your every move at some point circling around you whilst you're snogging. Spoiler alert, but it is very much, it's all encompassing that you're being watched in from three sides and above by the audience, but then also from all around you by your chorus, your strangers of castmates. There are whole chunks of this play where I don't really move from one spot, especially in the second half. But the, like I say, that they put that in his contract as well, by the way. He just didn't want to like yeah, talk too much. Tired. Yeah, Step count's getting too high, guys. It's yeah, hot. <laughs> There's a beeper on my Fitbit. But no, it's true. That's the point. Is it's not necessarily about huge athletic leaps. It's about that constant transformation that's happening. It's, it's the, the change is the only constant about it. And that's done purely through kind of clarity of thought. That's the main thing that we're that we're trading with. And it's very, very, very simple, but really, really hard to achieve. <laughs> Much like the ultimate lessons that Benjamin learns over the course of the story. It's what we're all trying to achieve is just simply being present and being available for, for those we love and uh, being completely fully engaged and open-hearted with what's right in front of us uh, and not try to leave any part of us hiding or secretive. You mentioned secrets earlier. and Because there's no real chance to be off stage and gossiping in the wings during this production, there are always secrets. There's always something that's happened and it's not not until the interval of being in the bar afterwards that you get to sort of trade. <laughs> oh my God, I'd, because, it, because it was an hour and a half earlier, now you're like, oh my God, I've forgotten that thing that happened. And um, you know. What what specific things are you referencing here? Are we talking about, you know, instruments being dropped? Are we talking about people forgetting lines? What's happening? Well, I can see the expression on Molly's face right now. Because, Mortification, uh, listeners, is the expression no, on her no, face. No, no, it wasn't her. It was my, I, I think I maybe got a bit too Methodist with my old man and <laughs> let one rip as I sat up in the old man's bed, which it got to be said that Pippa Hogg <laughs> struggled. I'm so proud of you that you that one. <laughs> While staring in Pip's face. Yeah, <laughs> you... trying, trying to maintain, well, it was Atmos. I was just adding further yeah. Atmos. Yeah, absolutely. It really builds the oh, characterization actually. up. Yeah. <laughs> Poor Pippa, that seems very cruel. Yeah, I mean, but, you uh... know, as I said to her, you're welcome, Amazing. you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Now, as you said before, this show has been relocated to Cornwall, which means you're speaking in Cornish accents. You are at some point speaking in Cornish, the actual language itself. What was the process of learning that like? Ooh. Approximate. <laughs> a slow moulding of uh, mm-hmm. something. I mean, I'm still going Welsh. I don't know about <laughs> <laughs> my Welsh friend. Uh, 
my friend busy from Cardiff. She came and she was like, a bit Welsh. And I was like, yeah, 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 a bit Welsh. Good, 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 good. <laughs> Must be really hard, especially as well. There's a journey to America partway through. So you're like, okay, well, if you lose the accent now, it's fine. But then you need to get back into that very specific mm-hmm. dialect. So how did you go about learning, especially the Cornish language for the singing? Was it just broken down into here are the syllables or you had a Cornish translator, didn't you, for the actual songs? Yeah, who wasn't with us in rehearsals, but we, yeah, we were basically given phonetic readings of it. And uh, honestly, I think the ambition was there was going to be even more. But it's because it's a lot of it is kind of guesswork or sort of retrospective work that's been sort of reverse engineered. And this is one of the things as soon as you start looking up, how do I do a Cornish accent? Then more or less the first answer that comes back is, well, don't really know. (laughs) There's a fierce, not insularity, but it's definitely a first sort of preservative, preserving independent quality uh, down there. But I do often feel guilty of just sort of being generalised and mummersetty and and stuff. Mm -hmm. So it's probably good that your friend from Bristol isn't here because he (laughs) probably think I was trying to take the mech out of people from Bristol. Um, (laughs) But there is something really enigmatic and haunting and strange about those Cornish passages, especially when they're combined with the sort of unresolved, very ancient folk equality of what Darren and, and Mark Aspinall have put together, the way they've voiced it, the way that they leave it kind of suspended, that it feels timeless because it doesn't end. And it feels like it could come back round at any point in time. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that having it in a language that's familiar, but so rooted in something where you go, okay, well, this is so specific, but not something that most people are aware of, that it brings in that otherworldly quality to it, where you could be having this anywhere, but it yeah, transports the story even more from the everyday to the magical and the mysterious of what happened to Benjamin. For for it to be Cornwall specifically, I mean, that is the heart of it. It is a love letter to this place that the, the writer loves so dearly. For you folks, have you got any connections with that idea of home that Benjamin keeps coming back to, that he's looking for somewhere to root himself, where you can go, that's the place, that's my soul's place that I'm coming back to, that I can connect with on the same level? Yeah, cool. I wouldn't know what a home is if I didn't have my, my wife to have my son William. You know, it's, it's, I wouldn't know what it means to, to get out into the world and try to build a family and maintain one over a lifetime. And this is the gift of doing this kind of work, is you get to articulate stuff that's perhaps impossible to put into words or assimilate experience over time. It's a strange thing to find yourself... I was always playing the son the angry, truculent son shaking his fist at his dad. And then one day I woke up and suddenly I was playing the father. And I was like, when the hell did that happen? Uh, it seemed to happen overnight. But uh, yeah, it's assimilation. And, but they, it's, it's articulated in the show that, you know, home is is not necessarily a geographical place. Yeah. yeah that's that's true. I've, I've been fairly nomadic since a pretty young age, which which squares with this job, definitely. But it can leave you completely freewheeling and rudderless and isolated unless you have that thing to anchor you and that and that's the struggle that benjamin's odyssey is trying to overcome is that kind of terrifying rudderlessness 
Yeah, I think for so many theatre goers and theatre makers as well, that idea of finding a home in the theatre, of being outcasts and storytellers and finding something that you have to create for yourself that is always going to slip away, though, because it's either it's a limited run. You can only be there for a specific amount of time or you're only there for the amount of time that you're in the theatre in the time. And and that's where you create your home. But then it has to go away again. And you're always looking for it or you're looking for the next job, the next story in the world that we're in at the moment where everyone sort of has no idea what's happening from one day to the next it is beautiful to have something articulating the idea of well hold on to what is important and when you can see that it's important make sure that you're recognizing it in the moment absolutely that's so beautifully put I mean and I think everyone what's so beautiful about this company is that everyone really has got that from the get-go and we've really bonded and connected in a way that there's so much like chemistry between everybody and I think that that makes so through the understanding of everything you just said, that's like has been very special to get to know everybody in this way and feel that. And, you know, we do Pip Pips introduced a lovely idea of doing a show dedication before each show and sort of having something in mind. And somebody in the company suggested about dedicating it to people who are away from like physical ideas of home but how grateful we are to like have built a home together doing this piece. Yeah, it's always, as William Hazlitt said, you know, the, the, the theatre is always beginning afresh. It's, you know, you can wax lyrical about a show or rip it apart, but the, the next person might go on the next night and or even on the very same night as you and have a completely different experience. It always fascinates me that people try to define it. They, you know, write up their reviews or whatever and you listen you, watch two kind of definitions in two different newspapers and you go, seriously, were you, <laughs> were you actually watching the same performance? Yeah, the it's, lens uh, that we see the world through is very much based on our own experiences. Yeah. Uh, and that is that is always and a changing thing. It's a present tense medium. It's not fixed in a can like a movie and it's not going to be exactly the same when you, of course, you're not the same when you watch a movie for a second time. You've changed and that, that makes it a bit, you know, we know what we're talking about here. It just genuinely is different every time you do it. And and shows have a, a natural lifespan. They're all mayflies. And it's just about combinations of people. I was saying this the other day, that any individual in this show might behave completely differently on a different show. But there's, there's something about the slight crisis of not having enough time to do an awful lot of very difficult work. And, and that just at somehow from somewhere, you get a general sense in a room that either people feel the need to want to bring their A game and to sort of obliterate themselves into something bigger than themselves, or they don't. And that's what the theatre trades on, really. And if you can't hold on to that, then it's past its sell-by date and it should be the most humane thing to do, the most artistic and creative thing to do is really let it go. So, I mean, when you're talking about that, that beauty of theatre being something that you have in the moment, there is something really special about this, that it's writing into quite a few new musicals that are happening at the moment, which are really creating, you know, Benjamin Button's got a lot of buzz about it, but there's a few different things that are coming through, which are new writing, new music. I mean, we've, on this podcast, we have spoken about Operation Men's Meet Till the Cows Come Home, but there is Kin, the new musical, there is Ride, there are, so there's then now a next opening soon. I'm sure at the start of this podcast episode, listeners, I've probably already told you about all of the new musicals that are happening but how does it feel firstly being part of a new musical and a new tradition obviously this did start in 2019 but it's still very fresh and what do you think the importance of new musicals is right now it's super inspiring to have people believing in 
something that they don't know is certain, you know, and it energizes the industry in a different way, I think, and inspires people to believe that something different is possible to be listened to uh, on a small scale, medium scale, and then like a larger scale. And it's super cool. It's just amazing to be a part of something that's backed in that way that has had that years long journey to getting to this point. So inspired by by Darren and Jethro for having gone on this journey so far. It's always a surprise, isn't it? It can come from anywhere. And they're, and they're, they're generally speaking, all the best ones sort of seem to be terrible ideas on paper. And so we go, you know, Harry Potter in the West End or like West Side Story. Hamilton's a terrible idea. But there's this need that there's this hunger. Well, there's a line in the Revisited where he talks about painting and when, when he's properly in the flow, it's like it's not like he's painting it, it's like he's uncovering something that was always there. There's something Paul McCartney used to say the same thing. Like he genuinely didn't know if he'd written yesterday or not. He'd come in the day and he played it and he went, Is this does anybody know this? <laughs> so I woke up playing this song and I don't know. Have I stolen this or is, is this a song that already exists? Because it feels like it always existed. And when you sort of you're in chasing that rabbit. And there are, there are moments, times, glimpses in your life when you catch the sense of something. Mm. And, and it is like it was always there. And, uh, and it seems strange that it's only just arrived. I had a teacher at, at, at drama school who was there on the opening night of West Side Story in 1956, Ooh. whatever it was. And it's, you know, this, but it's got to come from somewhere. Like I said, Bernstein said, you know, you, what you need for art to make art is a, is a decent idea and not quite enough time. And it's amazing what that can produce. I think we've definitely met that criteria. You um, definitely have. You've done. <laughs> and when it comes to producing, though, I mean, I, I, I've got the physical programme here and there is something genuinely in this programme that blew me away, which is a breakdown of the production costs. There is an actual, you know, an actual itemised list of how much it costs and a letter from the producers saying, you know, we're not making this at the expense of everybody else. Sometimes we assume when theatre is being made that the producers are cashing in and everyone else is being, I don't think they say exploited in some way, but there is that conversation often that happens. And, you know, we've had a debate in the industry recently about touring productions, finally having to pay for people to be housed and not having to pay for that out of their own money and the different rates of people going into it. That time, kind of transparency is something very refreshing. I mean, you both have worked in the theatre for a decent amount of time now. What was your reaction to that, you know, breaking out the copybook and saying, hi, let's break down some walls between the audience and the production process here? Great, there should be more of it. I think this style of production has the luxury, and especially this particular stage of development of this particular style of production is well-placed to lead that that kind of charge because it's an investment by ATG and by GBA into trying to give something alive. And it's not done with any expectation of making megabucks off it. That would be pointless to expect. You're you're on a hiding to nothing if you're expecting to try. There's no real reason to be embarking on this particular stage of this show other than doing something for its own sake because it's intrinsically worthwhile. So because your window has shifted onto things that are more important than bottom line, then you get the luxury of being able to say, okay, because this is sort of less important, as it were, there's no need to hide this or not talk about it. And frankly, I think we could use a lot more of that in the world and in our culture right now. Yeah. Do you think it breaks down some of those barriers, you know, people who think that 
things are that theatre is quite esoteric or elitist we get to go but you know actually sometimes it's just people making things for the joy of it and please think that you can access this too because you know we're figuring it all out as we went along yeah yeah fair enough <laughs> cool uh, fine one question for you outside of Benjamin Button when you are not on stage what have you been watching and listening that inspires you either theatre musical theatre music what's going on in the world that our listeners should be looking out for and queuing into reading? Ted Lasso come on Ted <laughs> still haven't finished season three yet we haven't got any time to watch it in the evenings at the moment yeah. so, so and those episodes are quite long in our series three they so are, they? yeah it's picked up a notch definitely yeah, you, in that case, you've got some you've got some musical theatre coming up in Ted Lasso to look forward to. Oh my oh, God, bless you. I haven't started any of it. I know that some people said you need to watch it. So, okay. oh my goodness, yeah, everyone needs to watch it. Hannah Waddingham alone, yeah. who is the ultimate stagey, and the I mean that woman. The amount of time I've wasted on the internet watching clips of her, either <laughs> like her... Michael Bublé off the screen. Did you see it? Oh. There's this Christmas treat in this massive red Christmas gown. Oh. It was amazing. But, I mean, incredible. that show is just, it's a bomb, isn't it? I mean, God, talking about stuff that we need more of in the world. I mean, a show that's entirely about cutting through cynicism and playing a long game of bringing isolated individuals out of their egos and coming together as a collective that can achieve more than they ever thought. I mean, holy hell, do we need more of that? And, and something that genuinely makes you feel happier than you did at the beginning of the episode. I'm with I you there. can't think of anything else like it on TV at the moment. And Molly, what about you? What are you reading, watching, wanting to see at the theatre? I, I too am a huge fan of Operation Mince Me. And I, <laughs> I don't know I've seen it four times now. Okay, wow. yeah, it's, it's pretty um, good. Yeah, my, I think I'm on okay, seven. You're seven. <laughs> but that's across the different iterations. So I haven't yeah, seen it okay. once yet. I'm so, I badly, badly need to see the show. I, I highly recommend it, Jamie. It's, it's when I first, my, my flatmate, my dear friend Christian Andrews, is one of the covers. I haven't seen him yet. If you catch him, like he's he's just phenomenal, and it's I mean it's his West End debut. But when I saw the show, I saw it at Riverside, and I watched it. I mean, I was like, oh, I love musical theatre again. It it just it just is so slick and smart and efficient with its storytelling, and I just love silliness. You know that like like yeah, as you as you're saying, like sort of mockery of being too serious in your life is so refreshing and I am so here for it I love it I'm with you and see listeners it's not just me that's obsessed I mean it is the entire world and if you haven't listened to our interview with Spitlip the cast and creatives of Operation Mincement then do go back a few months because it's it's I love yeah I love the energy behind the poster I saw on the tube it's like that is am I allowed to say big energy like (laughs) 57 five-star reviews don't need to put anything else, just the title yeah. of the show. Yeah. No, just, like, just wow. They just scribble it through, be like, guys, it's everyone likes this. <laughs> Come see it. Amazing. Uh, yeah, I also enjoy, I'm um, sure Christian, your flatmate will have found out, Molly, that everyone is playing understudy bingo, which is something that doesn't happen very often in theatre, where people are genuinely excited to see the understudies and they're playing bingo to try and get all of the different iterations of seeing Christian and Holly and all of the other understudies when they're on, because there are so many roles that people are playing. They're they're wanting to see how those different characters are approached by different actors, which I think is very unusual. Yeah, it's so cool, isn't it? I'm like, I'm so proud of him. It's just like an amazing achievement. And so they all have like two covers. So if ever anyone sees someone's second cover, then that will really be (laughs) on that bingo sheet, because that will be a wild day. 
I think there are people still trying to fill out that sheet from Cursed Child, you know, the, where are we now? Eight years later. <laughs> I mean, you, you brought up Cursed Child, which means I probably should be, not be remiss because the audience will be annoyed at me if I don't. You did originate the role of Harry Potter in Cursed no. Child. Did you Did you not originate the role of Harry Potter? <laughs> Never comes up. <laughs> Never comes up. Well, you did bring it up, so... No, I know, I know. I know. So I wasn't well, I actually going to say anything as a terrible interview. No, let's, let's not then. Let's not. No, no, it's fine. <laughs> You've done it now. And Robin is unable to be in this interview and he will kill me if I don't bring it up. So how was that? Quite a big it deal? lovely. Great. <laughs> <laughs> interview <laughs> done. <laughs> it was amazing. It changed our lives. We took it over for three years, got to move to New York for a year and a half. You know, just it was incredible and intense. And um, it, it it changed our lives completely. And I was knackered by the end of it. <laughs> That's very understandable. And how does it feel in some way people with Benjamin Button have got a, maybe an idea of, of what that character is and who it is? They definitely had an idea of who Harry Potter was. But then, so you firstly had to engage with that part of it. But then also now he's gone on and had a whole new life and so many different people playing him. So do you have a feeling of ownership over that character and no, people's ideas of that's, him or that's, no? That's, that's the liberating thing about theatre, isn't it? You don't, you, you're, just, you're just borrowing this stuff for a little while. It was never, if, again, talking about, you know, bad ideas, first time I heard about it, I thought it was a dreadful idea. And it was, again, it was the combination of people that turned me around, knowing that Sonia and Colin were helming it and that John and Stephen were going to be putting, you know, in charge of putting on the, the genius of Neil Austin on the lights. I've said it before, you know, that these were all people who I'd take a job blind with not knowing what the part of the production was. But in this case, it was it was reassuring and it was convincing because you had Jack Thorne who wrote, this is England. The, the obvious the choice for Harry Potter. Yeah, and, and which, you know, arguably the best miniseries I've ever seen. Oh, it's and, incredible. And, and, and I read it and even though it was in progress and it was clearly draft X of however many and we were going to continue workshopping it once we went into rehearsals, there was something fundamentally theatrical about it. The, the clincher for me was I had to sit in a room with a sort of a security guard with a bat and a gun standing over me so that I didn't, you know, nick it. And there's a point in the second half where you realise where the story is going to go and you're going to play, oh, that's dark. And then you see how they were planning on staging it, which was not staging it at all, but simply having the actor playing Harry, witnessing it and letting it read on his face, which is pure theatre. And I went, oh, shit, now I really want to do it. Because that was like a, just this, this gauntlet thrown down. And clearly it was, as John said repeatedly, it's a love letter to theatre. They weren't trying to play the game, the movie game. They weren't doing a magic-a-thon. They weren't doing an arena event. These things that were pitched to JK Rowling over and over and over and over again for years. And she kept on saying, no, no, no. And so there was a confidence in, in the combination of people who were setting out to do it. And I was just a very, very small part of that. And that's why I wanted to do it. So I went, this isn't about so-and-so in this role as whatnot. It wasn't about any one person in it. It was about the thing itself. Yeah, um, there is definitely a spectacularity to the the theatricality of it. I mean, it really is. It, that, it, it, there's almost a... It almost makes you think of like the golden age of of magic and vaudeville at, at times because it's just sort of like, let's throw all the tricks at this and really take the audience on a journey. Yeah, but Benjamin Button's got exactly the same deal. It's it, the opposite ends of the production spectrum, but ultimately they're just going on asking the audience to consciously choose deliberately to believe in something completely irrational for no good reason other than that if they do, it, they might get something uncanny out of it that has added up to more than the sum of its parts. And you can be in 
a stand-in in the middle of a 15 million pound renovated theatre in a production that cost X million to stage with all the bells and whistles in the world. Or you can be at Southwark Playhouse Elephant with a, you know, a modest production made up of just 12 polymaths or 11 polymaths and me. <laughs> and But it's the same, you're still asking, it's still, still trying to pull off the same trick. And it just, it depends on the levels of enchantment in the room. And you've, that, that either happens or it doesn't. You know, if you can't get people to believe in witches, you haven't got a Macbeth on your hands. If Romeo and Juliet aren't falling in love, you haven't got a play on your hands. And I said, that's, that, that's it. That's all it is and it's all it ever was. Well, I don't think I could have summarised the show. And if that hasn't got you wanting to see Benjamin Button, then I don't know. Buy some bloody tickets! <laughs> Buy some bloody tickets! Molly, Jamie, thank you so, so much for joining us on the podcast today. Thanks, Thanks for having so us. Thank you. And if you would like to catch The Curious Case of Benjamin Button, it's on at Southwark Playhouse Elephant from now until July the 1st. You can get tickets wherever you get your tickets. Robin, you were poorly, so you didn't get to talk to them and you can come. Firstly, I'm very sorry. It was very nice. I hope you get to listen to all of the songs very, very soon. <laughs> but what have you been seeing recently? So I have been to see SpongeBob the Musical, which I was very excited about. We went to see it in Cardiff and it's mm-hmm. last night in Cardiff. I loved it. I was a bit concerned that they would cut a song or two because there's a lot of songs in Spongebob the Musical. I don't know if you've seen the pro shot or, or heard anything about it. There is a pro shot out there for Nickelodeon, which is oh, okay. the, it's the Broadway production, which they filmed after it closed on Broadway. They couldn't find a theatre for it, so they brought the show to Plymouth, UK and filmed it in Plymouth. And as a producer, I think that, that is obviously the practical thing to do. <laughs> So yeah, so they bought the. If it works, you make it work. (laughs) So they bought the Broadway cast over and filmed it in Plymouth. It's, it's such a fun show. You hear SpongeBob the Musical and people are like, really seriously. I think they're expecting like big square costumes and stuff. And I think I've never ever said anything skeptical about it on this podcast ever. I've been sold by you. It it sounds really fun and silly and lovely. It's really fun. And I think it's definitely got that feeling of... I remember a quote about Frozen the musical being made by the writers and them saying that, yes, it's Frozen the musical, but it still needs to appeal to your Monday night audience that's going to come on a snowy, rainy night in the middle of November. Mm -hmm. It's still got to appeal to those. So SpongeBob is definitely that. It's, It's a kid's show, yes, but it's definitely a family show. And... It definitely appeals to the yeah, adults going on a Monday night. It's funny. It's bright. It's crazy. There's so much going on. And all the songs are really just upbeat and uplifting. I've not really watched Spongebob the TV show. Obviously, know what it's about, mm-hmm. but I've not really watched it. I love I the musical. it's about a pineapple who lives under the sea. No, no. Who, Spongebob, he lives, he in, a lives in a pineapple under the sea. Come on, Who Jeff. does? Spongebob. Squarepants? Yeah. So you don't even need to have seen the TV show to really enjoy the musical. The musical stars Lewis Corney as Spongebob and it's got some celebrity casting in it. So Davina DeCampo is playing Sheldon J. Plankton. Got such a beautiful voice. Oh, incredible. Pipes. Pipes for days. I didn't know how great of a musical theatre actor Davina DeCampo was. Uh, my boyfriend did because he saw her on RuPaul's Drag Race season one and, mm-hmm. and knew all As about the, it. Yeah. UK, yeah, the UK Drag Race, very, yes. very good. 
and yeah, she was incredible. And then we saw Gareth Gates as Squidward, who I don't think he was quite right for the role, but he was amazing. He did all the tap numbers. And when we saw it, he had a slight costume malfunction, which I say slight, it was quite extreme, bless him. And see his pants. No, it wasn't quite that bad. But in his tap number, he gets a top put on, like Velcroed on. Um, okay. And it's a sparkly, like, tux, basically. Glitzy. Yeah, glitzy, mm-hmm. sparkly tux. And the Velcro just wouldn't hold. And it just kept slipping forwards and was full on, like, open at the back. And they managed to fix it once and he was still doing his big tap number and it just kept falling. And bless him. He, he Styled it out. Styled it out, nailed it. It was great. It was so good. Okay. But honestly, try and go see it. It's amazing. Other... Well, it looks like it's on from... So right now it's in Peterborough and it's there till the 24th of June. It's then going to Wolverhampton, Norwich Theatre Royal, The Leicester Curve, His Majesty's Theatre in Aberdeen, then the Theatre Royal Plymouth and then finishing Newcastle Theatre Royal between the 5th and the 9th of September. So hopefully there's a theatre near you that you can go and check that out. Yes. I've also got tickets to see Love Never Dies in concert in August very excited about that and as we've already said I have tickets to see Diana the Musical in December Uh, but Jet what have you been seeing? I went to see Groundhog Day (gasps) for my birthday yay did you love it yay yay i did love it i loved it i cried i loved it i cried i've listened to that soundtrack so much it's the aforementioned tim minchin as we know he was performing at west end live and i think it's so interesting because firstly the soundtrack is so good the performances are incredible but also it's so minchin-esque like you get to see him playing with words and lyrics and songs and it's just every single beat is so thought out and funny And you do sort of think, I don't understand how I'm listening to variations of the same song for quite a lot of it over and over again. I feel very sorry for the actors. Their dreams must be absolutely mental because they must just be hearing the same thing over and over again every single day. But it's just so special. And it's again, it's a small show. It's got a big ensemble who are dancing and playing those roles and they are, they're brilliant and they really embody those characters. But fundamentally it is the story of just one man learning he needs to be better and connecting with different people and I think that there's something really really sweet about that but at the same time it's very funny it's set in the 80s which is always great and just yeah really 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 good enjoyed it a lot hope it runs forever and ever because it's a very clever show there's a video of Tim Minchin talking about how he wrote it online and talking about the chords because I mean Tim Minchin is a musical genius mm-hmm. and he goes into he knows his stuff yes and he goes into the different chords and where they sit within the scale that he's used and the key that he's used and how they replicate the, the 12 hours of a clock and and all this stuff wow yeah it's, it's so deep how he's written this show mm-hmm. which the, your normal hunters well I don't think anyone's gonna <laughs> gonna make no, that link no no one's but... gonna think that but that's Oh, and that I think it's that that work, right? That you that comes through when someone's really like connected with it and be like, well, you know, I've got an entire thought process through this, so you might not recognise it, but on some level, you're learning and you're recognising it. Yes. What else oh, have you seen? I was gonna say that is playing through at the Old Vic through till the nineteenth of August this year. It is quite well sold out, but if you can get a ticket grab it and i have also seen schoolgirls which is also known as the african mean girl play and that is its full title <laughs> um, which i saw at the lyric hammersmith last week it is 
so funny <laughs> so brutal it follows a group of four or five school friends in Ghana in the 80s and it's just dealing with them and their lives at school and the different things that they're interested in the different things that concern them and then a new girl joins the school who is from America but she's also mixed race and light-skinned and all of a sudden the competition that was just very light-heartedly them competing to be Miss Ghana and the main mean girl putting down all of her friends because they couldn't possibly be as good as her becomes an entirely different conversation about colorism and compromise and family pressure and exterior pressure and society and that makes it sound so serious and it's not it's it's you come away being like that was so funny it's so mean and it's so funny but at the same time it wouldn't stay with you as much if it didn't have at the heart of it this little seed of the world is really hard and really mean and there are so many things you have to get over and even if you are a bitchy 14 year old there are still a lot of things that you're dealing with yeah it's really really good if it doesn't have a west end transfer from the lyric hamilsmith i'll be very sad it was very very funny and i recommend it a lot it's amazing and to thursday night so when this podcast is out i am finally getting around to go and see the new version of oklahoma Ooh, very exciting. Yes, belated, but exciting. Yes. Is Marisha Wallace still in it? I think so. Amazing. I think so. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's still Marisha Wallace, and I think it's Arthur Darville, and yeah, I'm, I'm really looking forward to seeing it at that's, last. That's a hell of a cast. Yeah, intrigued to hear mm-hmm. what you think of that. So, watch this space. Yes. If you are still looking for a different recommendation after all of those shows that we've got coming up, then one thing that should be high on the list for anyone, especially if they've got a love of dance, is 42nd Street. It's currently on at Sadler's Wells in London before embarking on a UK tour. And I spoke to Nicole Lily Basin about how it feels to be stepping into the character of Peggy's dancing feet. so excited that this week on the podcast we have Nicole Lily Basin who is starring in the role of Peggy in 42nd Street. Her theatre credits include the role of Navalungi in the Book of Mormon both in the West End and on tour and Hope Harcourt in Anything Goes at the Barbathon Theatre and on tour. She trained in London at Arts Ed and we're so happy to have her on the podcast this month. Nicole Lily, welcome to the West End Best Friend Podcast. Thank you so much and thank you for having me. Now, as we record, tomorrow you are about to open at Sadler's Wells in London. How are you feeling right now? I am beyond excited. I think Sadler's Wells is a venue that's always kind of been on my bucket list of somewhere I've wanted to perform. I've seen so many shows there over the years. So just the idea of being able to open a show there and it'd be such a special show that I love so much is just it's amazing amazing well you've you've done my segue for me which is tell me about 42nd street (laughs) and your role as peggy but so peggy is peggy in 42nd street she is a young girl that travels from a small town in america allentown comes to new york to try and get her big break in her first broadway show and there's a couple of trials and tribulations on the way but by a stroke of luck she manages to get into the show and then the show's star, Dorothy Brock, gets injured and they need someone to step up and take over 
as the star of the show and they pick Peggy and she stands up to the to the task and she takes over as the star of the show. Now, obviously, you've had a couple of you've been in a couple of big West End shows already, but you're still quite early in your career. And it is one of those great shows for, you know, young actors coming up to be like, oh, yes, I am the ingenue and I'm you know, and I've got the I've got the bigger actor that I'm balancing off of. How does that feel? Does it feel like art imitating life when you go and you're like, oh, yeah, sure, I'll, I'll be in, I'll be the star. That sounds great. Absolutely. Honestly, I remember the whole way through the audition process, I was pinching myself because it's a show that I've wanted to be part of from being so young. I think the first time I'd seen the show, I was maybe like 10 or 11 and I fell in love with it. So I think the whole way, every time I had another audition, it was like a pinch me moment. Like, I can't believe this is carrying on. And then when I got the job, I cried for a long time and then was so excited. But it is imitating life it really is every night I kind of go out and I think oh my god I can't believe this is me and I get to sit and watch Ruthie Henschel sing one of the songs about a quarter to nine which is when she's kind of teaching Peggy how to become a star and I do quite literally sit on stage and just stare at her like wow (laughs) so it is it's great yeah, I mean, Ruth Henschel, she was Grisabella in Cats. She's been Fontaine in Les Mis, Nancy and Oliver. She's played basically every female role when it comes to Chicago. Yeah. She's really got that bucket list of, the, of oh, yeah. the roles that you think. So are you sitting there watching being like, oh my goodness, you've got the career, you know, is she telling you stories backstage or are you just sort of watching her on, on the skate stage being like, please, can I be you? The amount of stories that she has is just incredible. Like the people that she's worked with, the experiences that she's had, the advice that she has... It, it really is, I feel so grateful to be able to work with someone like her. And it, it is that thing where sometimes, I know people say it all the time, where you watch someone and it's like a masterclass, but it is because there were times in rehearsals where I would just be watching her work with our director, Jonathan Church, and I would just learn so much just from kind of sitting in the corner and watching how she works and how she found the character. And yeah, you learn so much. So when you say rehearsals as well, now you've been at Leicester Curve and now you're starting in Sadler's Wells as of tomorrow from when we're recording and then you're going on tour. So this is a multifaceted show for you. How has it changed since that first day in rehearsals to the different audiences that you're engaging with now? I think it's funny when you start rehearsing a show, a lot of the times you you spend time in different rooms doing separate things you might be doing a singing call with our musical director and then somebody else might be learning some choreography with our choreographer so a lot of the time it's not really until the final week or two weeks that you kind of see everything come together and that was one of my favorite parts of rehearsals kind of being sat down and then all of a sudden the ensemble had learned the entire opening audition sequence and I could just sit at the front and take it in for the first time And I would think, when did they do this? Where have I been? And they've literally learned this entire routine in an hour. And so I think it's finding the show. And then the first time we did it for an audience in Leicester, it's it's always fun because you never know how an audience is going to react, what parts they're going to find funny, what parts they're going to connect to. So you really do go through a bit of a roller coaster of when you leave the rehearsal room. And then when you start in front of an audience and their reactions do kind of shape the show in a different way. And I've done a few tours and I always find it really exciting when you move to a different city because everyone connects to a different part of the story or finds a different part funny or a different part really emotional. And I I love how it changes depending on who you're performing for. 
so it must keep it fresh for you then as well that you get to go oh I don't actually I don't have to have set expectations for what is going to go down really well I can just kill everything and then people will engage with it in different ways yeah now one of the things people I'm sure always engage with is you singing the title number which is 42nd street I mean there are some amazing songs in the show from lullaby of broadway we're in the moment money but 42nd street is the title track it is the one that you know everybody is singing as they come out of the theater how did it feel the first time you stood and sung that for people i have to say it's it's really funny because it, peggy has just had a moment with Julian Marsh, the director, who's being played by Adam Garcia at the moment, who is phenomenal. And she has this kind of moment of doubt where she's like, I don't think I can, I, I don't think I can do this. I can't, I can't do this big moment anymore. And he kind of takes her, literally puts her in her spot and is like, you will do it. And I think going onto stage and you hear the beginning of the song and the orchestra just sounds amazing. And I think my heart was doing a little bit like, oh my God, I'm gonna actually have to do this now. And so that was one moment where kind of Adam putting me in my place and saying, you've got to do it. I was like, well, I've got, well, I've got to do it now. I mean, <laughs> there's however many thousands of people here, so I've got to. And I think it's almost that whirlwind feeling. I didn't realise that it all kind of happened until the end. And it got to the end of the number and I thought, oh, we just, we just did it. And it was so lovely because the audience loved it. But I think that first time was definitely a bit of a, a bit of a blur. A bit of a nervous blur, but I absolutely loved it. And it is my favourite part of the show every single night. I mean, that's lovely. And you must be very excited, I have to say, to be in Sadler's Wells tomorrow, doing it for the first time on that stage that you've been looking forward to working on for such a long time. Yeah, 100%. Yeah. I think the ner- there will be nerves. The nerves will definitely be there. They never really go away. But hopefully I'll be able to channel them in a good way. <laughs> Now, we've gone through the last couple of years for you, but tell me, what was your start in theatre? What was the first thing that you loved? You said that you first saw 42nd Street when you were 10. Was that one of the first shows you fell in love with? No. So one of the first shows I fell in love with was actually The Lion King. I went to see The Lion King when I was very, very young. I would say maybe three or four. Wow. And I had got an older brother who had watched the films, so I I knew every single song. I'd watched the films pretty much every night. And so I just, I have this really vivid memory of being in an aisle seat in the stalls and the animals all coming past and just, it's a moment that I'll never forget. And I think that was the first moment I thought, wow, this is amazing. And I felt that magic. And pretty soon after that, I started dance classes. And I think, although none of my family work in theatre, I come from quite a theatrical family and that we grew up watching like Mary Poppins and Singing in the Rain and all those old Annie and all those old musicals. So and it was real classic musicals as well. Definitely, definitely. And then I remember seeing Oliver at Drury Lane and turning to my mum at one point and saying, I want to be on the stage one day. And I think from then, from then on, that was kind of it, really. I just knew that that's what I wanted to do and I never really looked back. I mean, and it's, it seems like it's going pretty well so far, so that's a good thing. <laughs> Touch wood. <laughs> yeah, touch wood. We're all very grateful that you haven't looked back. That sounds great. And if you are looking forward, where do you want to go? You know, you've you're we've got all of those classic roles. Have you got a bucket list or are you not speaking that out into the universe in case it jinxes it? I have a list as long as my arm of shows that I would love to be a part of, roles that I would love to play. But I think for me, I quite like I just like taking any opportunity that comes really. Sometimes 
you don't necessarily know that you want to do something until you start. So I think it's quite nice sometimes just being really open and going to auditions because something that you maybe didn't really know that you wanted to do might end up becoming the favourite job that you've ever done. So there is a very long list, but maybe I'm a little bit superstitious. So I'll keep it. We'll see. <laughs> keep it close to your chest. That's totally fair. <laughs> uh, so in terms of the shows that you've been in so far, I know we mentioned you working with Ruthie Henshaw, but we can't be a stagey podcast without mentioning the other grand dom, although she's not quite a grand dom stage yet, of theatre that you worked with, which is Sutton Foster in Anything Goes. How? How? Why? How was that? What a dream come true. She is just... It's, it's, it's kind of hard to describe her. She is the loveliest woman ever. And she is so generous and so kind. And I think it was... The only way I can describe her is like the ultimate professional. She is the best leader of a company. She kind of comes in. She's always the first person at warm-up, the, the first person at any rehearsal, at notes. She's always... she's She works so hard. And never gives less than about 200%. I think every single show that we did at the Barbican was near perfect. She's like an athlete, like an Olympian. And it was just amazing to just watch her perform, really, and just kind of try and embody her at any point that I could. It was it was a dream come true. <laughs> it must be so lovely having these brilliant women to walk in their, not walk in their footsteps, but especially, you know, you've got Sutton, who's, say, 20 years into the biz. You've got Ruthie, who's 40 years into the biz. And then you're sort of, you know, five years in. Is that about right? Is it since yeah, you graduated that, yeah. about five years? Yeah. But doing amazingly already that you've got, you know, this path ahead of you, but also a lovely way of sort of working with people and in community where you can go okay this is how I could lead a company this is how I can step into the power that I've got and and be with people that must be really quite special it is really special and I think no matter how much you try and prepare for things or you learn things at say like college or uni like some things you can only learn by watching someone who is a professional that has done it for years and there's certain things that you can only learn on the job. And I feel very grateful to have been able to watch people that are at the top of their game and have been for so many years, um, how they act in the company, how they interact with people and just how they lead a show. Yeah. Now, the last couple of shows you've been in have been really classic, you know, big dance numbers, huge choruses, that sort of thing. Do you feel, especially now that you're in 42nd Street, you're in the 1930s and those amazing costumes, do you feel like you're just stepping into an MGM classic every single night? A hundred percent. A hundred percent. I mean, the costume design, the set design, it's, it's all just beautiful. And I think it's you can't help but feel like a superstar when you're wearing these gorgeous costumes that are just so beautifully structured. And it it just changes how you walk and how you act when you're zipped into these costumes that are just so grand, I think. And it's, it's like playing dress up every night. And I mean, I just absolutely, I love it. And my favourite thing is coming in and getting my wig on and doing all my makeup because mm. it's... It just puts you into the character. I think when you've got all of that on, you feel like a different person straight away. So, um, And it's obviously very different from your first role in the West End, which was in the Book of Mormon. Tell me about getting into that show and how that process was. 
That was probably the most fun that I have ever had doing a show. It was hilarious. I think I had seen the show with my family about a year before I ever auditioned. And I remember everyone saying, don't listen to the soundtrack, don't Google it, don't find anything about the show until you go and see it. So I had no idea what to expect. No preconceptions whatsoever. No preconceptions. I had no idea. And... I absolutely loved it. It was so much fun. And I remember at the time I was at Arts Ed and we were doing a lot of our written work that we had to do for our degree. And we had to like write down a list of roles that we wanted to play in shows and why. And and one of the first things I wrote down was Nabalungi, Book of Mormon, because I'd just seen it like the week before and wrote this whole essay about the show and why I wanted to be in it. And then fast forward a couple of months, I got an audition through for it and couldn't really believe it. And it was it was a time where I was still at Arts Ed, but auditioning. So I was kind of learning as I was going along. I'd never been to an audition before and they were really good at guiding me through what needed to be done. And then I got the job, which was amazing. And it was the first time the tour had gone out. So we were really lucky that we had like five weeks of rehearsals from scratch doing the show all together. And it was so much fun. We went to some amazing places because it was an international tour as well. So going back to what I said about performing for different audiences, performing for audiences in different countries where English isn't necessarily even the first language was amazing because there would be literal different parts of the show that they would find hilarious that say an audience in Manchester hadn't really even reacted to. And it was very different. Obviously, I mean, we weren't really allowed to wear makeup and the costumes weren't as glamorous as they are. In- <laughs> Fewer sequins, that's for sure. <laughs> less, se- less sequins, but it was a different kind of fun. I think when audiences are literally crying with laughter in front of you and it's such big reactions because I think everyone's kind of a little bit taken aback and a little bit shocked because of the type of humor that it is it's very it's definitely treads a line right of making people shocked and making it and and that must be very fun to play with yeah definitely definitely and that is, I mean, it is very, it's very much comedy through and through that show. So is that something that you really enjoy playing with? And did you expect that comedy would be a path that you'd go down when you were training? Or did you think, you know, singing, dancing, and then yeah, humour? Or did you think, I want to play with those roles more? I think I've always liked comedic roles in a way. I think sometimes, I don't know, it's, they're fun and it's always fun to kind of play with it. So I think I went from a, obviously a very a comedic role to then doing Hope Harcourt, who is funny in her own way. I think it's her it's funny due to circumstance rather than her being a comedic character. So I think it was really nice to play with that kind of juxtaposition of going from a, a comedic show to playing the kind of ingenue who's going through this awful dilemma of just being so heartbroken. So it was really nice to have that kind of contrast. And then, and now Peggy, she is funny in her own way, but just through her kind of naivety and awkwardness in a way, and just her excitement and love of all things theatre. She's just the ultimate stagey person, which is really fun to play with because she's just so wide-eyed and in awe of everything that's happening. It's been fun to play with the different types of comedy across different shows. 
Absolutely. That sounds lovely. Now, you have had a very busy few years, but have you been watching anything at the theatre? Has there been anything particularly that's got you excited outside of 42nd Street? There have been a few things that I've seen that I've been trying to trying to get in and see like throughout rehearsals and while I've been traveling around I've got such a long list of things I really want to see I saw let's put it out there let's get all the PRs listening now and be like hi and Nicole Lily's here (laughs) (laughs) so you saw Newsies you did Newsies at Arts Ed didn't you I did Newsies as my third year show at Arts Ed and uh, I saw it and I absolutely loved I love the show I I have like a real connection with the show because it was the last thing that I did when I was at Arts Ed but it was just phenomenal and I think the way that they have adapted the theatre at the Troubadour to fit the show is just brilliant and the talent coming out of that cast is just unbelievable I mean I sat with my jaw like wide open a few times obviously I don't want to give any spoilers but some of the things that happen that you just don't even expect it's out of this world and I loved it I loved the music and everything and then what else? I've got a long list. I really want to see Once on This Island at Regis Park, which was another one of my third year shows and a show that I have loved. The music for that is absolutely stunning. Stunning. Yes, that's also on my list for this summer. And uh, yeah, I've not been to the Regent's Park Theatre open air before. And I think it's such a big show with such big vocals that you're like, that's the way to really fill it. Yeah, I think that'll be really, a really special one to see live. And what else have I seen recently? I actually saw, I'm trying to make an effort to see more plays because I I love musical theatre and I spend my life doing musical theatre, but sometimes I feel like I want to to go and see something else. So I took my mum, because she really wanted to see it, to see the Lehman trilogy. It just Yeah, it's just closed. It's Um, opening in the US now. And how was that? I loved it. It was, it was amazing. It was long. I think it was about three and a half hours with two intervals. And I don't think I've ever sat through a show that, that was that long before. But there was a cast of three, three men who were on stage the entire time. How they remembered the lines, how they, I just, I was in awe. But it was really interesting and I loved it. And I want to make an effort to go and see some more plays. That's my list. That is good. Yeah, I, I have that conversation with myself fairly regularly, which is, come on, you like theatre. You don't exactly. just need to go see musicals all of the time. Exactly. Is there anything particular that you look for in a show? Is it, you know, is it great performances? Is it great vocals? Is it just the stamina or the gravitas from somebody? Or does it depend on what you fancy at the time? I think performances, I think that's the one thing that I always take away from a show. There's always that person that stands out for me or the person that I'm like, wow, they were amazing. They really got into it. They really stood out for some reason to me. And I think also the music, I try and see shows that I don't, I see shows all the time, but I love seeing a show that I don't know much about. I love hearing new songs and kind of discovering new music and adding it to my Spotify playlist and listening to it again. And I quite like not having any preconceptions, like when I went to see Book of Mormon for the first time. There's so many shows that I've never listened to the soundtracks of because I don't want to, because I want to experience it for the first time when I go and see it. Like Come From Away, that's on my list. I've not seen it. I really want to see it. And I've been 
like not listening to the soundtrack on purpose because I want to just experience it firsthand. That is a very bold way of doing it. So it's on, obviously it's going on tour in February. Listeners, make sure you've got your tickets for that. I've seen it a couple of times in the West End. Yeah, if you've not listened to the soundtrack, you are, take some tissues. It is, it is a heartbreaker, but also beautiful, beautiful, fun, folky soundtrack. Yeah, that, that sounds fun. And how do you find mixing that, you know, if you are sort of going in without any preconceptions, do you still feel like you get to enjoy it as an audience member? Or do you get to sit and do you switch in your head between like, that's a really interesting choice that they've made there or I wonder how they do that. Or do you just get to be washed away by the magic of theatre each time? I think sometimes it is hard sometimes to kind of turn off that part of your brain. And I do really try to just go in and just enjoy the show without thinking of that. But sometimes you can't help but be like, oh, that's a really interesting choice. Or I really like how they did that. And oh, the way that their intention of that bit or the way that they changed their voice on that bit. You you do clock, clock into those things and you just kind of can't help it. But those are the things that I love, like how different people interpret things and how they do it as, a, as opposed to and not in a comparison way to how I would do it but like oh I would never think about doing it like that and that's really clever and I really enjoyed the way they did that so yeah yeah no I I think that that sounds like a, a really fun balance to have between the two ways of looking at it well Nicole Lee thank you so much for joining us today on the West End Best Friend podcast to remind listeners 42nd Street is on at Sadler's Wells in London until the 7th of July but then it's going on tour around the country all the way till October 2023 so make sure you get tickets wherever it's going to join you and thank you so much for joining us today thank you for having me How much dancing do you like in a show, Robin? Are you like, is it songs first, plot, dance, when you come to a musical? Or like, is the dancing something you don't ever, for me, it's like, I don't go for the dancing, but then I see it and I'm like, holy cow. I remember seeing Charlie Stemp in Half a Sixpence several years ago, I was working on the one show and we were interviewing him and I went to see the show because of that. And I was like, this is not something I ever really prioritize in a musical, but I am, blown away <laughs> yeah i'm kind of similar to that i and le- like i love being s- surprised by dance in a show mm-hmm. uh, hamilton really surprised me with the dance in mm. that because i wasn't expecting dance and choreography and it, there's a lot of it and it's oh my god and again ariana debose is the bullet in that and the control of her body and the uh, the movements of the ship and the movements where they're taking up space just mm. oh, oh yeah so good but even things like when i've taken friends to see wicked they mm. haven't expected the choreography and that that's in these shows so there, i mean there's so much dance in in so many shows and yeah i primarily go for the songs mm-hmm. but I, i'm always massively impressed by the dancing in shows and especially if it's a show that we're not expecting like Hamilton obviously if you're going to see Billy Elliot or something you're still you're expecting it but then even then the chorus in Billy Elliot just looks like your average Joe off the street and mm-hmm. you see the dance numbers that these big guys are doing it's phenomenal I suppose as well because you know especially if you access musical theatre a lot of the time through soundtracks and through singing it yourself and being part of it then that's the bit that you're identifying with and that's the bit they're holding on to and so yeah you hear those however many bars where there's no lyrics and no singing and you're like that's nice maybe something's happening here but you don't get to visualize that in the same way so when you see it it's like oh i've not been thinking about that i've not been playing it. i've not had my own expectations of it and so you just get to be like 
holy cow, wow, their their bodies move a lot, don't they? And look at that tapping. And actually, yeah, I was watching, again, I saw it on social media, but Charlie Stemp on, and the cast of Crazy For You on the one show, I think a week ago or something. And again, it's that bit where they've got bin lids and they're all tapping on them. And you're just like, <laughs> uh, yeah, very, very cool. I think 42nd Street is the same where, especially, you know, it's such a glitzy 1930s show with kick lines and costume changes and sequins and sparkles and all of that stuff. It's such a spectacle. Very, and, very cool. And I think that's another thing that non theatre people don't realise or don't appreciate is how difficult it is to do a huge dance number. And then just carry on singing like nothing happened. Or even, let's just sing through the dance number. Because <laughs> that happens as well. Yeah, their cardio workouts must be very impressive and very... Yeah, I can't do it, that's for sure. <laughs> but yeah, things like 42nd Street and definitely things like Hairspray. When you watch Hairspray and then you get to the end, you're like, how are you, how are you alive? Like, <laughs> Yeah. Oh my goodness. Brilliant. More dance. I need to go and see more dance. More dance, yes. for sure. More dance. You can't get enough dance. No. So that is it for this episode of the Western Best Friend podcast. I hope you've enjoyed hearing all about our show-focused episode and our amazing interviews as well. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so, so much to Jamie Parker, Molly Osborne and Nicole Lily Basden for taking their time to speak to me. I'm so impressed by everything you do, especially that they squeeze in a little, little hour or so, half an hour here and there just to talk rubbish with me for our wonderful podcast is very very appreciated so make sure you go and get tickets to their shows if you can yes and as always we'd love to hear from you all of our contact details are in the show notes so please get in touch we'd love to hear your opinions on diana if you went to west end live please let us know your opinions on the tonys anything let us know we'd love to hear from you and we will read out any messages we get on the episode next time we absolutely will and until then i am jack gerbertson and i am robin divin We'll see you soon. Bye. Bye.